Well, I kind of like the music, and so that's why we've allowed the music to play just a little bit longer as I introduce our program, Treasures of Faith. My name is Bill Gent. I'll be your host today. And as you all know, this is a local production of Divine Mercy Radio, and we want to be available to you. I know that there are many out there uh, who do not have access to the Internet, and so their source for all things Catholic is this Catholic radio station. So we hope that you will remember us uh, as uh, we continue to minister to the Space and Treasure Coast. Father Ben is joining me, and we are continuing our Lenten pilgrimage today. We're approaching Holy Week. Father Ben is going to be with us next week also, so hope that you tune in. Well, Father Ben, so wonderful to have you with us, and we are in very strange times, and yet we are here and you've been offering all of us just a beautiful Lenten pilgrimage. Welcome back. Well, thank you, Bill. It's good to, to be back, and uh, we're blessed that we're able to, to be here and to continue sharing with our listeners and trying to sh- nourish them and nourish each other uh, during what is still the Lenten season, approaching, uh, of course, Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week. Uh, under circumstances none of us would have ever uh, imagined uh, on a sort of a lighter note a um, couple of weeks ago, before sort of all this uh, came onto the scene, one of the, uh, the the head sacristan at my place uh, wanted to begin going over, you know, the plans and the protocols and all the different details, as everyone knows, that go on behind the scenes to pull off a, a holy week and a triduum yes. in a in a parish. And so her husband, uh, she had had been ill, um, and continues to be ill, and uh, is having really a lot of back. Uh, troubles and of course she was one of the unfortunate people like I'm sure some of our listeners who were scheduled for surgery but uh, even though she's been in pain for five weeks uh, this is still considered elective surgery so and again unable to receive this so anyway um, still concerned about making sure everything gets accomplished in her absence so her husband delivered to me about six giant binders of sacristan <laughs> instructions for Holy Week. And I remember at the time saying, you know, when the time comes, you know, I want to review everything before we sign off and get everybody in place while those six giant fat binders are still sitting in the public's grocery bag uh, in my office. And so despite uh, truly the great pain I have in in not being able to celebrate with a community uh, Holy Week and Easter, yes. uh, there is a part of me that's looking over at that bag sink thinking, I'm glad I don't have to go through all of those <laughs> those binders. Well, Father, I have to ask you: Do you think the apostles brought those to Jesus in the upper room? I know they were they were lucky. You know they they didn't have all the protocols that, that they were we in have. on the ground floor. Yeah, they were on the ground floor. There were yeah rubrics were yet to be yes. determined uh, at the Last Supper and the original Holy Week. So uh, anyway, it's just good to be back with everybody. And I think you know all of these themes again have. Uh, have been and continue to be pertinent to us that we've been exploring. And as I shared with everyone on Tuesday, you know, we have uh, the podcasts are loaded on to the uh, Reno radio station's website for people to go back and review um, all kinds of programs that that have gone on. But again, we might want to go back and uh, re-listen to some of these uh, segments on the Lenten pilgrimage because as I mentioned Tuesday, they are going to look and they're going to sound uh, perhaps a lot differently than they did three, four, five mm-hmm. weeks ago yes. because we're in a new experience. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if people mm-hmm. hopefully gain some insight in their lives and in their spiritual lives, uh, you know, in, in week two, um, week two may have something brand new yes. uh, to say to people because 
our lives together, our lives personally are in a different place. So hearing about the upper room or uh, hearing about the ups and downs, the highs and lows of pilgrimage, maybe you're going to sound differently. So again, I just simply encourage people to go back and, and check those out maybe this week. Well, Father, we were in the upper room and we talked last time about the liberating Paschal meal. Now we are making our way to the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yes, this week uh, our topic today is uh, prayers of an anguished heart, the Garden of Gethsemane. And so I'm sure that just that theme alone is ringing in all of our ears and our hearts as we, we think about the anguish that we're experiencing on, on you know, so many different levels. And I was talking with a friend of mine last night, and uh, they're better than I am in a sense in that they they dip into the television news every once in a while to see what's going on. I, quite frankly, have a very difficult time exposing mm-hmm. myself to any of that. Mm-hmm. So I kind of rely on them to give me the high points of, you know, what's happening or not happening. I, I you know, I can't personally, I just can't see something scrolling on the TV 20, uh, 24 or seven, constantly yeah. reminding me of numbers and figures. Mm-hmm. And, but anyway, what they were sharing with me too, is just how anguished their heart is not only for their own situation and, family members and people they care about, but, you know, they just, they have a compassionate heart and and it's just breaking their heart to see and hear the stories of people struggling in great anguish all over the place Mm -hmm. uh, for for a variety of different kind of reasons and Mm -hmm. the ripple effects of, uh, into every inch of society, Uh, you know, uh, the veneer has been pulled back. And I think this is one of the challenging things of our time is, you know, this veneer that we live under constantly. And it, it's just it's just the way we're built. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not to make people feel guilty, but we live under this very thin veneer of control and order yes. and values. And mm-hmm. and it doesn't take a whole lot. I mean, you know, here in central Florida, we where we sort of experience this during hurricane season. Every time a hurricane comes through and, you know, OK, that's five or six or seven days or 10 days of abnormality and then we kind of slink back in well this this veneer has been pulled way back and is exposing so many uh, weaknesses uh, i guess in our catholic terminology so much of the real sinfulness of mm. of who we are and how we treat each other that that it's like oh pulling the scab off of a wound that we kind of turn our face away from so anyway they were just I guess what I say at the beginning is the prayers of the anguished heart of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is a place where we easily find ourselves, uh, maybe desire not to be at this stop on the pilgrimage, but we find ourselves there anyway. And, and of course, the, you know, the ironic thing is we often call this the Garden uh, of Gethsemane. Well, this garden is unlike anything we associate with, with gardens, you know, gardens are, we think of them as uh, beautiful and tranquil Mm -hmm. and, uh, there's gardens are about growth. Mm-hmm. Gardens are about life. They're about blossoming. And yet the Garden of Gethsemane at first seems to be nothing like that. Mm-hmm. And yet our faith tells us, and because it's the Lord who's in this garden, you know, in a in a strange way, in a very different and unusual way, when we enter into this garden, the garden that we're in now, um, there is tranquility there is growth there is life there is uh blossoming um there was a little uh, someone had given me a calendar uh for christmas with uh church signage quotes on them so oh, each yeah. day as you see those. you know one of these famous kind of <laughs> church uh, quotation uh type of things and I, I don't know whether it was this morning or whether it was yesterday morning but the sign said something about when you find yourself in the darkness 
think that you are planted in the ground. So, mm. you know, so there is growth and everything, but it's mm -hmm. a very kind of different garden uh, than perhaps we're, uh, you know, we're uh, accustomed to. But I wanted to ask you, as we're sort of in this scene, you're the one that has been to the Holy Land. And mm. um, did your trip take you to Mount yes. of Olive Gethsemane and maybe kind of just situate us in what the reality of that place is? And then maybe I can take us on a reflection after that. But Sure. Well, Father Ben, uh, I've had the privilege of visiting the Holy Land twice and each time uh, and I have in my mind, this is why I always encourage people to take the opportunity, if at all possible, to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Uh, I can recall standing on the Mount of Olives, and of course the Mount of Olives is positioned east of the old city of Jerusalem, not far from Bethany, as you know, Father, where Jesus spent a lot of time with <laughs> Mary, Martha, and, uh, and Lazarus. And I remember standing on the Mount of Olives overlooking the old city, and I recalled the words of Jesus uh, weeping over the city. And I, I can remember thinking, what was on the heart of Jesus as he overlooked that city, obviously anticipating that he was going to be rejected, that he was going to experience his passion, death, and, of course, his subsequent resurrection, but I, I, I was thinking about what he thought about as he stood there and all that that meant to him, and yet he proceeded to descend the Mount of Olives to the garden. And, and I can tell you, Father, I think you've been there. It's quite a descent from the Mount of Olives. I mean, you're going downhill, and you really have to brace yourself going downhill. But as you descend... There are all these graves, and there's a lot of cemetery, a, a huge cemetery there on a certain part of the Mount of Olives as you descend to the Garden of Gethsemane. But the Garden of Gethsemane was an amazing place. Uh, we had mass there, and as we walked around that garden, uh, and of course, as you said, it's not a garden like we would think of as a garden. Uh, you could envision Jesus there with his apostles. And, of course, as we all know, they all fell asleep. <laughs> and I thought about how difficult it is to overlook the weaknesses of those that you rely upon the most. Yeah, uh, you know, your, your description there, too, is uh, so to help our listeners, again, is to uh, realize that so the Mount of Olives itself, so the garden is located sort of at the foot of the the Mount of Olives, so Jesus is said to have gone there frequently mm -hmm. um, by at least a couple of the gospel writers. So literally the Mount of Olives is overlooking the city. Um, so, you know, that sense that you're portraying for us in reality is he's got this view of sort of everything that is is lying ahead. Um, and at one point, you know, weeps for everything that's about to take place as he, he, he looks out. So, so you've got this sort of bird's eye view um, but yet at the same time, you know, the time that he spent on the Mountain of Olives prior to this Passover evening, um, he's still looking at it from a distance, mm. uh, it, sort of knowing and sensing omens of what's going to happen there. But there's still some safe distance between when you're on the Mount of Olives, you're not in the city yet. And on this particular time, going to this place of prayer, as you say, you literally, you know, descend from this safe looking, looking on from afar, and now begins that walk. This is the beginning of that actual journey. No, I have to face what's about to happen to me, and I have to 
you know, move from this place of prayer and tranquility and turmoil. And, uh, of course, in John's gospel, it's a very different Jesus who is a very different character. There's no anguish <laughs> in the Joe and I Jesus. Um, he is ready, ready to go. But then you say, you know, to come down uh, the, the mount and then begin this movement now, I can no longer look on from afar. I have to enter into the center of of this uh, you know this this passion. And so as you mentioned too, it's 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 not a it's not a floral garden, it's not an arboretum or uh or uh, like looking to go to Lou Gardens or something like that in Orlando. Um but in fact really is uh, Gethsemane is an uh, is a place for olive trees. And I think the stories are that you know some of those olive trees or at least the beginnings of them date to not only the time of the Lord but you know even predate that. Um, and if you have ever, um, of course you have, but if others have, if you've never seen mature olive trees, mm. uh, they're pretty gnarly. Yeah, they are. <laughs> you know, they're yeah. pretty gnarly looking. They're not uh, pretty at no, all. No, they, they are not attractive. No. Um, what hangs on them, especially to me, is attractive because uh, I'm a great lover of anything olive, uh, including olives. And so it's been painful for me to go to one of my favorite haunts at the Fresh Market and not be able to go to the olive bar and, you know, stack on everything that you want to. I have to buy the prepackaged. You are uh, revealing your nationality. Yes, now, I am certainly you revealing my, my nationality. Uh, but, but, you know, just physically, from a physical standpoint, when you think about the, the nature of these olive trees, and again, if you've never seen them, you know, go onto the internet after our show today and take yes. a look. Uh, they are gnarly and beaten and scraggly and and twisted and mm -hmm. in so and to me in so many ways they represent also uh and and of course they produce this beautiful wonderful fruit that has been a sustaining fruit for yes. peoples of all cultures but it comes from this very twisted very unappealing um, almost like somebody's been beating these things for centuries. Mm. Out of that, though, comes this fruit. And isn't mm. that so much really yes. symbolic of the Lord and what happens mm. to he and his, uh, his followers at the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane is twisted, turning. What's about to happen is not pretty, but we know the fruit of what begins here is going to be an incredibly beautiful, beautiful thing. And I think sometimes, Father, when I was there, and of course uh, we did the Way of the Cross, and we'll probably talk about that in a later show. But what it was, what it reminded me of, is how God Himself injected Himself into our human experience. I mean, if I mean, of course, I'm not God, and I don't would never claim to be God. I would show up at a more modern time when things were a little easier. Uh, but but the Lord injected himself into a very brutal era, a very brutal culture. And, you know, he really did get down with the people. And the passion just came alive for me because I was there and because I saw the streets. And as I mentioned, I saw the garden and I thought about the seriousness of prayer and his prayer that he offered uh, in that garden some 2,000 years ago. Yeah, and we're going to get to specifically talk a little bit about just, you know, we can't do everything, but talk about a, an angle or two about the actual uh, prayer that Jesus uh, shares in the garden, at least in the synoptic gospels he does. But, you know, back to the whole business of Gethsemane. Um, 
you know, one of the great uh, symbolisms, and I think we can draw much meaning from, is, you know, what's in a name? Uh, what, what, what's, where'd this Gethsemane uh, come from? Well, it's a, our word, Gethsemane, uh, is a sort of an English corruption, uh, sort of malappropriation um, of alighting two Hebrew Aramaic words. Uh, the word gat, which literally means a place for pressing wine, um, also by association oil, but it's a place for pressing, for squeezing, for mm. smashing. Mm. And the word uh, shaman or shmanim, uh, which is shaman is the plural, um, shmanim is the singular, for oil. So literally, Gethsemane, in our English corruption of it, is the wine press of oils. Mm. So the name Gethsemane um, just carries in a, you know one little word the whole package of not only what was that place, mm. which we can explore here for a moment or two, and then we'll move on to, well, I mean, what a more appropriate, is there a more appropriate place for what is about to happen to Jesus in mm. terms of his passion than in the place of the pressing of mm. the wine, the pressing mm. of the oil um, and oil? So in Jesus's time, uh, practically speaking, um, oil presses, were composed basically of two very large, heavy stones. And sometimes you see them pictured a little bit differently. Some historians think that they were sort of circular uh, with a pole uh, through the middle of it, a hole in the middle, and then this was kind of moved around uh, for pressing. Others uh, depict just sort of giant slabs Mm -hmm. of, uh, of stone, heavy stone slabs that were lowered onto uh, baskets of olives. Olives had already been pitted, um, and they had already been crushed to a certain degree in the olive baskets. And then gradually these slabs uh, weighed down, squeezed uh, the olive oil out of that pulp, and then the oil drained into a pit, and then from there it was put into uh, clay jars. So, so you've got this literal image mm. of mm. what is going to bear fruit uh, what is going to pour out this lo- really life-sustaining element of mm-hmm. of life, not only in Jesus's culture, but continues in our culture, many cultures today, this olive oil um, is going to be, and how has it come about? It is contracted. It is, uh, it is destroyed, mm-hmm. literally mm-hmm. crushed, mm-hmm. you know, and here we come back to the, you know, yep. crushed for our offenses, the scriptures yep. tell us. So mm-hmm. literally here, the crushing begins in the Garden of Gethsemane in this this place of the oil press. And here's a very interesting uh, thing that I I never really thought much of until I came across this again. But when the olives, you know, when this mash is smashed and ground and uh, repeatedly done so, initially the oil emerges from the olives as blood red. Mm. So if you look at pictures of the crushing of the initial, the first pressing, as it is called, of olives, it's not that sort of golden, beautiful golden green color yeah. we associate with. And sure. if you're a, like I am a connoisseur of olive oils, you know, I go to buy one, I read the label carefully, and then I hold it up to the light. Mm-hmm. And the darker, the richer mm-hmm. it is, the better it is. So, you know, that's the, that's the premier, the epitome of olive oil. But when this olive oil first mm. comes out, it is literally blood red. Mm. So, again, we think about, you know, anticipating here, what is the Lord about to go through? What does Luke tell us happens in the prayer of Jesus when yeah. he is literally sweating drops of blood in the press, in the crucible? 
uh, of God's passion that he's about to enter to. So uh, very just an interesting little twister, that blood red color before turning. So that, Jesus chose this place. Must have been just a coincidence. Must have been, been just a coincidence just a or a very interesting yeah. literary device. Now, <laughs> we, you know, as the Gospels go, we might think, well, wow, very smart literary device. But we're told in the Gospels, um, you know, this isn't one of those evangelistic features that is put in by a gospel writer to sort of accentuate something. You know, all four of them consistently tell us this was a place that Jesus had gone repeatedly mm-hmm. uh, for prayer. Mm-hmm. But yet I would say with that is, again, no wonder he went there because there, mm-hmm. th- it represented. And just think, at the time that Jesus is going and praying there, this all of crushing activity is is going on. This is a cottage industry happening. So as he is not only uh, the night of the the Passover, but all these other times of prayer that he and his disciples went, hopefully when they were more awake and alert than they were on this particular night, he is surrounded by this literal crushing and pressing and eventually producing of something that is life-sustaining. And somehow maybe, as you were saying earlier, he's looking out on the city, the Mount of Olives, knowing what's what may be forthcoming, and yet he is witnessing around him this, he is going to become not a symbol of being crushed to produce fruit for the salvation of the world, mm. but literally he is he going to be crushed, you know, crushed. to do so. And uh, just another little thing that's, again, I think, symbolic and very very uh, important to think about is you know how do people get the olives off the trees in order to first uh, you know get them to to make the olive oil in the beginning well olives are harvested by beating the branches mm-hmm. uh you beat the branches of the trees with sticks in order to knock mm-hmm. off the fruit well this is literally as we know is going to happen to the lord mm-hmm. uh as he goes on from here uh in his passion so that that's that deep rich symbolism and i don't mean symbolism here is kind of a passing fantasy right. i mean the reality mm-hmm. of uh, jesus is pressed from all sides mm-hmm. now the thoughts of impending abandonment mm-hmm. the temptation to leave this mission behind mm-hmm. you know let the cup pass from me his impending death i mean he he is he is the the all of being crushed pressed in from all side mm-hmm. the crushing weight mm-hmm. of all of what is about to happen to him, he is now here um, in the garden, and no wonder it is primarily the prayer of an anguished heart. Uh, he is in the crucible of, of the passion. And so from a scriptural standpoint, you know, our, our sinfulness grew out of one garden, mm. the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. Our salvation is going to begin in another garden, mm-hmm. and it's now the Garden of of Gethsemane. So we've got sort of these two gardens juxtaposed with each other. So I think a, a very powerful Gethsemane, yes. uh, even as we read those scriptures, when you put that in conjunction with the symbolism of the whole uh, pressing of the oils, uh, just brings, I think, a whole different dimension to what Jesus himself is undergoing. And by association, you know, as we are in our own garden of anguish now, um, and when we come to that place any time in our lives, we, we're having that same experience of being pressed in from, from all sides. Uh, but the key, of course, going on is Jesus isn't there alone. Mm. Um, he is there, yes, with sleeping disciples, but there's a greater force that's there with him to help mm. him mm. come through this this pressing from all sides. I know a lot of us are familiar, Father, with uh, Mel Gibson's film, 
the Passion of the Christ, and I know you'll recall that scene in the garden. And I know there's a little bit of literary license that's taken there, but I think that was one of the more impressive scenes uh, in the whole movie because we tend to look beyond the whole thing in the garden. It's kind of like, okay, this is sort of an introduction to the Passion, but the real passion takes place when they actually nail Jesus to the tree. And yet we come to realize, I think the movie definitely portrayed this, the passion really began much earlier. Yes, much earlier. In fact, you know, literally we can say, um, and this is part of what we've been uh, doing in my my community, and now we're, we're sort of doing it by way of recording, is studying the passion narratives. We've been doing that during Lent. Um, and, you know, many scripture scholars have often used the expression that, you know, all four of the Gospels are really a passion narrative with a long introduction. Mm. Uh, mm. Because everything is centered, really. Yes. The, 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 the passion narratives are the heart and soul of every Gospel, yep. and then they cast a shadow backwards and forwards uh, on to the life of Jesus. And so, really, in that sense, I mean, truthfully, when did the passion begin? Um, for the three synoptics, it begins uh, at the birth of Christ, uh, even perhaps before that. Uh, and for John, the passion of Christ, this this Son of God, it begins even before the world is right. is created, mm-hmm. uh, when the Son and the Father and the mm-hmm. Spirit are are together. So, yeah, Gethsemane is not just like some little uh, passing fad or some just like minor stepping stone. Uh, in many ways, it, it it represents, and I think if we put this, you know, this crushing of the of the uh, the olive, and that whole cr- think of again, Gethsemane is a crucible. Uh, there is already much blood, sweat, and tears shed there. There's already an allusion to what these so-called faithful followers, you know, now they're sleeping. They're going to do worse than sleep yeah. uh, going forward. Who is Jesus relying on as his agony begins? So all of the elements of what's to follow are present there. So it's not just a kind of a prelude or an unimportant scene. And I know when you read Mark, Father, Mark seems to be kind of in a hurry to get there. You know, almost in the way he writes, he's almost in a hurry to get to what I really want to get to. (laughs) Right, yeah. And so, um, but but I think, you know, and for for many people um, in our own spiritualities, uh, many people have probably spent a lot of time in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mm -hmm. I remember as a kid, probably my earliest uh, memory of an image of of, uh, the the, the Garden of Gethsemane um, was a picture that hung in the bedroom of my uh, grandparents, my grandmother and grandfather's house, mm. my maternal grandparents, um, and and it's sort of that that picture, that image mm. that sticks in my head, and it's the it's the classic one where it's pretty dark sort of scene, and Jesus is illuminated from heaven as he's kind of sprawled out in a very uh, kind of a coral colored tunic and a very dark mm-hmm. robe, very uh, curtainy and flowing, and he's you know sort of half prostrated on this large uh, stone. Um, and it's by Heinrich Hoffman. It's a mm-hmm. classic. Probably a people, classic ha- people have that in their uh, prayer cards and sort of things. And, you know, that image to me still sticks in mind. And it, what it tells me, reminds me of, is that, you know, the garden and what Jesus went through and what the apostles went through is very close to the heart of much of our own spirituality and our own faith journey. So it's it's a, it's a the garden is a place that has a lot of meaning. Mm. 
Mm. Because I think in the course of our own lives and our own spiritual lives, we're in the Garden of Gethsemane. I was just going to say many times right now for many of us in a very unique way. Right. Well, Father, we're going to take a, a short break. I'm joined by Father Ben Barinti. He's the pastor of Immaculate Conception Parish in Melbourne Beach, and he is uh, joining us to lead us on our Lenten pilgrimage. And so we will continue on the other side of the break. You are listening to Treasures of Faith on Divine Mercy Radio, Melbourne, Vero Beach. Stay with us. Welcome back to Treasures of Faith. Father Ben Brinti is joining me as we continue on our Lenten pilgrimage, and we have descended the Mount of Olives. We find ourselves in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, as we look at the four Gospels, we have four separate portraits, really, of the Passion. Um, How do you see uh, the evangelists giving us a sense of this scene in the well, garden. You're right. You know, the, each again, each of the evangelists, as they do in the entire Gospels, but certainly highlighted in the Passion, um, you see some sort of common events, uh, some common characters, but each of them is always approached in a little bit of a different way. And, and we certainly see that here, reminded of that very much, uh, as we come to the Mount of Olives, uh, some call it the Mount of Olives and don't really use the term Gethsemane. Uh, some just simply say there was a garden there. Uh, so it, it's not always identified quite as clearly. But it's interesting just to, uh, you know, one of the most important pieces of this experience uh, at Gethsemane is the prayer of Jesus. Um, and I think there's a lot that we can learn from that. Uh, that prayer there, but each of the evangelists uh, takes a little bit of a different approach. So just take a quick snapshot of, of the four evangelists and see, you know, what do they have to say? How are they portraying the actual prayer of Jesus? So uh, let's start with Mark, the earliest of the Gospels. In Mark fourteen thirty four, we hear, my soul is very sorrowful, uh, even to death. So Mark is, again, uh, his whole portrait of the garden is a pretty grim a uh, gloomy uh, one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus is almost, uh, when it comes time for the arresting party to arrive, uh, he is not that enthusiastic, let's say. Uh, he is resigned, mm-hmm. but not resigned in the sense of uh, st- strongly committing himself. He's going to go through with it, but it's like, okay, if this is what's supposed to happen. So Mark casts a pretty gloomy, very gloomy scene here. And so he has, in the words of Jesus, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, which, uh, again, in the scriptural parlance, echoes Psalm 42. Mm. My soul is cast down within me. So, again, we always see these connections with, Mm -hmm. uh, again, because if Jesus is praying, you know, we often think perhaps that Jesus is, you know, he is the master of spontaneous prayer <laughs> to the Father. Sure. And I am sure. sure that there was much spontaneous prayer mm-hmm. through the course of his life. But Jesus is a Jew, so his primary form of prayer is going to be the Psalms, mm-hmm. which he would have known like a, every good Jew backwards and forwards, up yep. and down, uh, could begin one, end one, and go back to the middle without, you know, batting an eyelash. So much of Jesus's prayer, uh, even the evangelist would say to us, on the cross is, uh, and and anyway, so so Psalm 42, perhaps part of what's on his lips. But for Mark, then the prayer of Jesus is he is very strongly praying that this hour, this cup might pass. 
perhaps the strongest of the three synoptics mentioning that the cup needs uh, to pass. It is a prayer of resignation uh, mm. to his fate. So that's the tone of, of Jesus's prayer. In Matthew, he refers to this place now as Mount of Olives, and that's an important um, reference for Matthew because he is drawing on two, uh, at least two Old Testament scriptures uh, speaking about the Mount of Olives. And very interestingly enough, we find the Mount of Olives mentioned uh, by name twice in the Old Testament. First in the prophet Zephaniah, uh, chapter 14, verse 4 and following. So what is the Mount of Olives for Zephaniah? It is the place of God's judgment mm -hmm. on the world. This mm -hmm. is where God is going to descend yep. and judge the world. Mm -hmm. And then in Samuel, chapter 15, verses 30 to 31, interestingly enough, it's the place that King David flees mm -hmm. when his own life is in peril. Yep. Uh, Absalom is, a, is causing this revolt, and he goes there, and he is weeping because mm -hmm. of the betrayal of Absalom, and he is seeking refuge there. Mm -hmm. So for Matthew, mm -hmm. this is, again, putting perfect those things together, perfect, perfect connection. God's judgment on the world mm -hmm. is about to begin in what's happening to Jesus. And uh, the prayer of Jesus here um, as you reread that, should echo for us another prayer that Jesus delivers earlier in Matthew, and that is what we call the Our Father. Mm -hmm. Jesus begins the prayer uh, in Gethsemane with my Father. And the pattern of the words that come out of his mouth very much echo what he taught his mm -hmm. disciples how uh, to pray. Uh, interestingly, in Matthew, Jesus withdraws three times. Um, and, but here, unlike Mark, his prayer is not without effect. It begins with a very, like Mark, very troubled, very sorrowful. Jesus is prostrate uh, on the ground, but it ends with him on his feet, and he is not resigned to his fate, as Mark portrays, but rather here he is resolutely mm -hmm. uh, facing the hour. Mm -hmm. In fact, his words are, after the prayer concludes, the arresting party is arriving, rise, let us get going. My betrayer is mm -hmm. at hand. So the prayer of Jesus here, echoing the Our Father, uh, you know, again, if Jesus taught his disciples this is the best way to pray, what better way for him to pray in his moment of need? You know, Father, when you pray the Psalms, and I know you're obviously very familiar with this, when you read the Psalms, the psalmist always seems to, at the very beginning, seems to be in a bad place. He's lamenting his situation. He's uh, downtrodden. And yet this process of prayer leads him to a place where all of a sudden everything seems to be okay because he's found his connection to the Lord. Right. The, I mean, the, the predominant number of uh, psalms um, tend toward being in trouble, yeah. for lack of a better way of saying it, of many kinds. Uh, and then there are, of course, the handful of the psalms of pure praise, mm -hmm. pure adulation. Right. Um, and as I often uh, tell people, suggest to people, when somebody says, geez, Father, I don't even know how to pray. Where do I begin to pray? What should I pray? Should mm -hmm. I do rosary? Should I do this? Should I do that? My first thing to them is go to the Psalms. Mm -hmm. One, we're rooted in the Word of God. But secondly, every human emotion, concern, need mm -hmm. uh, is there on the yep. lips of the psalmist. And, you know, I, we may not want to admit this, but... 
uh, more often than not, uh, the course of our prayer is going to be more lament than it is uh, joyful praise. Uh, we, we criticize ourselves for that occasionally. But again, I'd say, oh, well, look at the Psalms. Um, there's an imbalance there. But the other thing I, I think, in, which you're alluding to as well, and this is what I often share with people, the Psalms are incredibly honest. They are yeah. the most honest prayers to be found. There is no mincing of words, whether it's adulation or is used, you know, suggesting that they often start out with lament and my enemies are here and what have you done, Lord? And, you know, you mm-hmm. made a fool out of me for even believing in you. Th- these are raw, honest prayers. And then they follow a pattern of, you gotta, I'm laying it out there, Lord. You know, Lord, you're big enough to take what I'm about to say, which we always need to remind ourselves in our prayer. God is big enough to take whatever we're going to put out there because God is looking for honest hearts, honest mm-hmm. prayer. Because I kind of remind people is if you start your prayer off with anything other than the honesty of where you are, you're not going to end up with much mm-hmm. on the other end of it. Mm-hmm. But there is then this process within the Psalms that once you sort of say, this is where I am, then the psalmist begin to recall, hmm, God has been here before. I remember this. I remember that. I might not be feeling it and experiencing it right now, but I do know somewhere yeah. in my mind and heart, you've been there before, and whatever is going to happen, I'm trusting you'll be there again. What a great mm-hmm. uh, pattern. And so we can imagine Jesus here praying the Our Father, praying uh, these psalms, being as honest and as brutal as he could with the Father. I think, too, Father, we again grow in our appreciation for prayer as a process. Mm-hmm. And and too often, I think, a lot of people enter into prayer saying, well, I've got to check this off my list. Let me just kind of utter these words. Their minds are completely somewhere else. But by the time they finish their prayer, well, I did that, check, done. When in reality, we see not only, as you mentioned, in the Psalms and in the Old Testament, we see the prayer of Jesus himself as a process with that brutal honesty with the Father. If only we could recover some of that for ourselves. Maybe what we're going through right now is a great opportunity for it. Right, exactly. And I mean, obviously, there is place for formulaic prayer. There's a great place for it. Uh, and the beauty of, of that uh, and a variety of formulas to fit different kind of experiences, they are helpful, of course, when we're at a loss for words. Uh, I, I can't pray. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, the words won't even come to my mouth. So, yes, I turn to something that someone else has prayed on prior to me, and it, it begins to give me a voice. And so, certainly, plenty of room for that. But I would say even in those moments— when, you know, literally might say, I'm just at a loss for words. I mean, I don't even know what I feel. I, I wouldn't even know where to begin. You know what? You're already starting the beginning of the prayer mm-hmm. because you are speaking honestly to God. You just need to direct it to God. Mm-hmm. In other yeah. words, Lord, I don't even know where to begin. I, I don't even know what I'm actually feeling. I don't even know if this is worth any amount of time or not. And if nothing more comes from that, then move into mm-hmm. a more formulaic prayer to give voice to what we what we can't yet wrap our own heart around. So even, <laughs> I guess I would encourage people, even when you're a devotee of using pretty much packaged pre-planned prayers, and you know if you're someone that's rattling off a whole series of them, at least always begin that 
that time of prayer with some level of honesty or at least some expression of who am I now? What am I going through? Lord, as I come to you today, here's here's where I'm at. And then begin your, you know, chaplets and rosaries and, uh, you know, different kinds of formulaic prayer. But somehow we always need to what we learn from the Psalms and we learn from the prayer of Jesus is you got to begin voicing where we are and then. You know, and then we move on. So the prayer of Jesus then takes a, a sort of a, a different spin in uh, Luke's gospel, uh, unique to Luke's account of the prayer of Jesus, is he doesn't separate himself from the body of the disciples. There is some space, but not a lot of space. Um, he doesn't separate himself even from Peter, James, and John, as, as uh, Matthew and Mark tell us. But the expression, a very beautiful expression that uh, Luke uses, it simply says he withdraws about a stone's throw away. Far enough to deal with the snoring, perhaps. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Far enough to deal with that. Far enough away that uh, those lingering behind can probably hear part mm-hmm. of what's uh, what of going what's going on. And that, of course, the the unique aspect to Luke is that indeed the prayer is answered here in somewhat of a dramatic way because God then sends the angel, mm-hmm. uh, the angel is sent from God to strengthen him. The other. Uh, three evangelists mention nothing about any angel, any immediate. So again, even in the prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane, the these three evangelists are, are introducing us to different ways of praying when we're in a bad spot, different ways of praying uh, when our hearts are in anguish, but also different ways that God, we might, I guess the way I'd put it this, is God is always responding. Don't get me wrong. But how we perceive how we can pick mm. up on the way in which God is responding to this mm. prayer might be different mm. in different situations. And that's what's happening here. So not every evangelist says, oh, immediately God sends the angel and, and ooh, you're ready mm. to go. No, in that experience, Luke says Jesus, you know, he has the sense of an angel is coming to minister to him. He is strengthened by that. And sometimes in our mm-hmm. prayer of anguish, we it's a very tangible thing. Mm. Yes, I, God is right at my side. I know that. I feel mm. that. There's other times I'm praying in anguish when I've got, all I've gotten is uh, let this cup pass from me and I haven't been able to move. Mm. And I haven't felt something more than that. So I think the evangelists show that. And then, you know, John, always the uh, most unique, uh, a totally different. Different approach. Totally different approach across the board from beginning to end. And of course, there's lots of reasons for that. But John, the prayer of Jesus for John, there is no prostrate Jesus in the dust. Um, He is not praying that the hour and the cup pass. Um, That's not the Johannine Jesus. In fact, this Jesus is actually there eager to drink the cup of the Father uh, in chapter 18, verse 11. Um, and it's interesting to note this. This is this is uh, John's total in control, Jesus. I'm the one orchestrating the whole business. Um, it's not Jesus on the ground in Gethsemane. It's going to be the police and the yes. Jewish authorities mm-hmm. who go to the ground. Yep. Because when Jesus mentions the divine name, I am, they mm-hmm. fall to the ground. Yep. They're the ones who are prostrate, struck down to the ground. So a very different... Jesus, and again, sometimes in our own prayer, because of I don't you know where we happen to be, uh, we we may actually feel a bit stronger mm. uh, in this moment mm-hmm. of difficulty and anguish. Uh, you know, some, sometimes we we rise to the occasion, and so even then in our prayer, we may experience something similar to this this idea that um, uh, 
you know, it, it is it is a challenge. It's an anguish, but I don't know. There is this strength that I have, and I'm mm. I'm I'm ready to go. So I, I think the beauty of what we see in the four evangelists as they portray the prayer of Jesus um, in the Garden of Gethsemane opens for us a variety of ways to pray when we're in our own experiences of anguish. I know I've always thought about growing spiritually is ultimately about waking up. And, you know, I I see in the apostles, of course, they're going to deny him eventually, but they're already on their way to denying him because they've already kind of fallen asleep, I guess we could say. We could look at it from a kind of spiritual perspective. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, a a, a great little poem. I'm not going to be able, we don't have time for me to share the whole thing, but I wanted to share just a piece of it. It's by a writer named uh, Stephen Garnis Holmes, and it's simply called Stay Awake. Uh, and it begins this way. I slip into sleep, a deadness I seek, a trance of avoidance, distractions, pleasant coma. I am numb to your world, O Christ, to your suffering, your love, unconscious of you here. Awaken me, Breathe yourself into me and rouse me from my fearful distance. Mm. Mm. So here we are uh, mm. in our spiritual anguish, uh, literally fearfully distant often uh, from one another. But here in this, uh, in this garden of our time, should we choose to go in this direction, this is a great awakening. Uh, we are asleep in so many levels mm. uh, of our, our life. Yeah, we're up and we're moving, but... I mean, one of the beauty of this time we're in now, but I think one of the great pains and challenges is we are probably more awake and alert than we have ever been. And to be awake and alert means you got to face a lot of things you don't mm-hmm. like to face. We'd rather yep. be in the, as the, uh, as uh, the poem from Holmes says, let's be in a trance of avoidance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let, mm-hmm. Let's be in uh, distractions, pleasant coma. Well, there are not as many distractions to put us into this coma right now. So it's the, you know, it's the, it's the promise and the peril of the moment yep. we find ourselves in. But yet if we choose as the Lord does in the, in Gethsemane to really be awake to what's happening around us, then we will not only find our way in and through it, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll find ourselves uh, greater attuned, especially, you know, to the kind of suffering that goes on every single day mm-hmm. in our world. Mm. You know, you and I, and uh, we are people who, you know, we live a pretty padded life in many mm-hmm. ways. Yeah. Uh, to be in this kind of a, and I face this myself in my own spiritual struggles during this period of time is we're not used to being vulnerable. We're not used to not knowing, not used to at least having many things in our purported control. And yet so much of the world, so much of our own society, this is the way people live every single day because Mm -hmm. of their, their circumstances, their poverty is you know, so we, we don't know what's coming tomorrow, and people are voicing that. Some people, every single day, this is their life. So this whole sure. awakening, as you say, mm. as part of the spiritual journey, um, is is captured here in Jesus' prayer. And, 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 and before we begin to wrap things up, I just want to add just another little uh, symbolism that's often associated uh, with the prayer of Jesus, which takes us back to the whole garden uh, and the oil uh, pressing business, is that uh, in Matthew, uh, Jesus prays three times uh, in Matthew 26, verse 39, verse 42, verse 44. Three times he asks that the cup passes. Well, 
again, because of where we are and who Matthew is, it is often symbolically repre- uh, attached to the three pressings of olive oil. The first pressing of olive oil, that's the best. That's the oil that was used in Jesus' time simply for anointing and for temple service. Mm-hmm. It was the creme de la creme. Mm-hmm. The second pressing was what was used for food, for medicine. The third and final pressing, not the best quality for the others, but it was the oil that was used for heating and for light. Mm. And so some people make the association with Matthew, Jesus asking three times for the cup to, to pass. These are the representative of the three pressings of the olives. And here is Jesus who is, first and foremost, anointed as Messiah. Mm-hmm. Secondly, here is this Jesus, who especially for us as Catholics, is food mm-hmm. and healing. Mm-hmm. And that third pressing of the olives, the oil which was used for heating and light, here is Christ, mm. who warms our hearts with his spirit, who lights the way. Mm. So just another little mm. symbolic association mm. that I think is worth, uh, you know, beautiful worth images. Yeah. So, I mean, I think for us, uh, you know, maybe in the closing moments we have is so, you know, what does Gethsemane teach us about pain and suffering? Mm. Um, what does it teach us about pain and suffering in our own time? And of course, it teaches us a lot. Uh, but, you know, we're again, we're, we're limited uh, by what we say. Um, you know, in the time we have left. But clearly, you know, at least um, three of the gospel writers, the synoptics, where do they begin Jesus's prayer? What does it teach us about pain and suffering? Something all of us are familiar with, and I think we're all struggling with right now, is the desire to escape, yeah. <laughs> to to avoid. Let the, I mean, how many times this ha- pass. Have, have we been saying, you know, let this pass? Uh, I've said to myself many times, this can't be happening, mm. you know. Uh, so, this is it's okay that this is the, the beginning of perhaps much of our prayer and will continue to be during this time it's you know let this cup pass this can't be happening why now you know all of those kind of associations i think and and what flows from that often panic fear you know and here's here's the spiritual challenge i think in a nutshell at the moment that you and i want to feel most tethered to god When we're in these experiences of pain and suffering, that's often when, strangely enough, we don't feel. Mm. uh, We feel unmoored. Mm. We feel disconnected at the Mm -hmm. very moment that we want to feel more tethered to God. And the way that Jesus shows us how to move through those, not deny those experiences, be honest about them. How do we move through them is you keep moving forward, keep giving voice to the fact that, Lord, you feel distant from me right now. I feel distant from you. I can't even worship. I, I can't even go before the blessed sacrament. Um, I can't, you know, receive a person-to-person absolution for my sins. Uh, you know, all, all of these different kind of things. Lord, I, I can't celebrate the sacrament of marriage um, unless I have less than 10 people uh, come. Um, mm-hmm. We can't even celebrate, uh, you know, a, a funeral mass with everyone who needs to be there, my entire family. You know, so all of these kind, of, but we keep giving voice to that as Jesus did because in the garden, ultimately, he doesn't avoid the hard truth of his situation. Mm-hmm. He, he names it. He identifies it. But then what does he do is he moves through that, mm-hmm. not because of his own strength, uh, not because he is son of God, but simply because he asked the question in the garden that you and I asked, Lord, how can we go on? And how do we go on? By being in relationship 
with the Father. Mm-hmm. This is how he goes on. And that's the, the heart of his prayer. He's being in relationship with his Abba. Jesus isn't simply like bucking up. <laughs> he's right. not just, you know, gritting right. his teeth. He's not mm-hmm. trying to be strong. He's not, you know, pushing on unaided or alone. He is going on with God, mm-hmm. with the Father. And he embraces his suffering because he knows ultimately he's never alone. And that's the beauty of our faith, certainly, Father. Let's uh, share in our uh, Lenten pilgrimage prayer. God of the journey, create in each of us the heart of a pilgrim and give us the courage to set off on our Lenten pilgrimage. You call us, Lord, to leave, as we have been doing, familiar things and our comfort zones. Grant that this time spent on pilgrimage may help us to see ourselves as we really are and may we strive to become the people you would have us be. God the Father who created us, guide our footsteps. God, the Son who redeemed us, give us a share in your passion. God, the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us, lead us on this Lenten journey. And may the blessing of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with us wherever we may go. Amen. Amen. What a beautiful prayer, Father Ben. Father Ben Berinti is leading our Lenten pilgrimage. And I want to remind our listeners that Father Ben will be with us again on Monday and Tuesday of next week, which is Holy Week. So this is an an opportune time for you to join us, especially during Holy Week, Father Ben. And we will continue uh, this series. Next time, we will find ourselves uh, leaving the garden on the way to uh, Calvary. And I know that, Father Ben, I know that on behalf of your staff and your parish, I know that uh, you obviously want to reach out to your parishioners as well as to our radio audience. And we want our radio audience to know that we are here. We are with you. We are journeying with you, not only on this pilgrimage, but throughout next week during Holy Week, you'll have an opportunity to participate in many of the programs that EWTN is offering, you can go to our website, divinemercyradio.com. You not only find there a schedule of all of the events uh, that will be broadcast on this Catholic radio station, you also have an opportunity to connect with your individual parish. You can go to individual parish websites and get all of the information that's available. And I just want to say that for our listeners, do not forget to financially support your local parish. It's very important at this particular time that you take the opportunity. We talk about a gift. We're talking about uh, Eucharist, and we're talking about us as being Eucharistic people. We offer a prayer of thanksgiving as we not only give of ourselves, we also give of our resources, our finances, uh, to ensure that our parish communities will continue to minister Uh, to our individual communities. So, Father Ben, again, I want to thank you for taking time out to join us. And I know that uh, you're busy, and there's so much that we can be doing to support our parish priests. Remember, they're missing us as much as we are missing them, and that's been uh, repeated to me a number of times. So please continue uh, to pray for your priests. Pray for our bishop, obviously, for the pope. Pray for the intentions of the Pope. Be supportive of one another in prayer. And again, these programs, this Lenten pilgrimage, uh, you can revisit uh, each one of those sessions 
at divinemercyradio.com. You'll see a tab there for podcasts. Please go there, and you can join me and Father Ben as we have uh, uh, offered you this Lenten pilgrimage. So thanks for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with Apologetics Friday. You are listening to Divine Mercy Radio, Melbourne, Vero Beach.